Well, hello, friends. It's time for the second hour of Open Line with Dr. Michael Rydelnik, Moody Radio's Bible study across America, where we take your questions about the Bible, about a particular passage you've wondered about, about God, about Christian doctrine, about the spiritual life. I'm Dr. Mike Fabares. I'm filling in today for Dr. Michael Rydelnik. I happen to be the founding pastor of Compass Bible Church in Aliso Viejo, California, and I'm also the voice you might hear on Focal Point Radio on many of these stations. I think all these stations. I'm the author of a lot of books that uh, if you want to type in F-A-B-A-R-E-Z, Fabares, into any of those book outlets. Uh, to have you look up some of the books. And I say that here on Moody Radio because the next book that's about to drop real soon is a book that Moody Publishing is putting out, I think in a month or two. I've done my part. It's on envy. And so if you've ever found that there's that little nagging frustration you have about people that seem to be doing better than you at everything, or they have more of what you want, and you get frustrated at them more easily than you do other people, then you need to read this book on Envy. It's coming out, and I'm excited to see how that might help Christians live a more contented Christian life. And uh, just to recommend that to you, and I know Moody's going to be talking more about that just in general to try and get people to understand that this book is available and it's there to help. But today we're here to help on Bible questions, and you can call us at 877-548-3675. And I'm looking at the board, and we've got a lot of lines open right now. We've got questions lined up, of course, but if you want to get on the program, you call right now. We're pretty sure we'll be able to get you on, and we'd love to have you call. Now, I know many people, they make it a habit to call, and that's great, but if you've never called before. You listen to the program over and over again, and you've never called. Today's the day. I know you don't have Michael, Dr. Michael Rydelnik, but you've got me. At least I'm a Michael that you can talk to today and hopefully shed some light on your questions. So call me, 877-548-3675, and I'll do my best to answer your question. And if you want to not be on the program with your voice, but you want your question to be heard, you can go to openlineradio.org, openlineradio.org, find that Ask Michael a Question button, click on that, fill out the form, and we'll put that in the mailbag, and we'll get to that later in the program. So keep your Bibles open, as uh, Michael Raydelnik likes to say, keep that second cup of coffee going, and make sure it's warmed up, you're ready to go, and we're going to go back to the phone. So let's go to Hugh, and he's listening on WLPG, the good News Network. Uh, Hugh, good to have you on the air with Mike Fabares. How can I help? Uh, in Genesis 1-2, we read that the earth was formless and void. And uh, then in Isaiah 45-18, uh, we read that uh, God formed the earth and established it, did not create it a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. Um, and I am wondering you know, what your understanding of those uh, two verses are as you look at them together, but also to ask, uh, is it a, an acceptable, possibly acceptable understanding that as Isaiah 45, 18 indicates that God didn't create a waste place, uh, indicating that he would have created a I guess an orderly place, as it says, to be inhabited, and then something happened to make it uh, be a waste place, as Genesis 1-2 says, um, but without a timing sequence to uh, know just how it all worked out. Okay, well, and, and, and we don't usually ask questions of the caller, but let me ask you a simple question, Hugh. Why do you think God rested on the seventh day? It wasn't because he was tired, right? God, because his work was done. 
Okay, but why did he rest? Creative work. Why did he need to rest, though? He didn't need to rest, right? God doesn't get tired. That's very clear in Isaiah 40. He never gets tired. He never grows weary. See, my, my point is the reason I believe he created the world the way that he did at the beginning in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, and then went through the process of forming what was there that was without form and was void. It didn't have anything in it, and it was dark, and he was going to create light and do all that he was going to do was as a pattern of work and rest. From Isaiah, I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 20, all the way through the law, the point of the of the six-day creation and the seventh-day rest was a pattern of work and rest. If I bought my, uh, my kids some clay, and I threw it on a table, and uh, I started working a, a project, and I made a, a car out of it, and, and if, if my kids wanted to summarize, hey, he made a car, uh, that's, that's, that's an accurate way to describe it. But it started as a blob of clay. And if I'm going to describe it and all the steps I took to, to make it, I would say step one, I threw the blob of clay down on, on the table and I, I started to make this car. So I understand the gap theory. And the gap theory is that God created a world that was inhabited, it was all perfect at the beginning, but then it was destroyed. So it was creation, destruction, formless and void darkness, and then God recreated it. And then that is a view that is often uh, proposed because people are trying to say, I want to make sure that I can deal with something called radiometric dating and uh, ge- uh, geography, I'm sorry, geology that describes these rocks as being so old. And the only way to get that time is to have this big gap between the initial creation of the planet, then the destruction of the planet, then the recreation. And that gap theory doesn't, th- th- is there a room for that? Sure, people can have that as a view, but I think it's unnecessary because God creates everything, including the atomic structure of rocks, to have an appearance of a history and age that it never had, just like he created full-grown human beings, just like he created a, a full-formed wine in Canaan. Jesus can create that out of out of nothing. Uh, those are the kinds of things that happen, but God is, is creating things with a history uh, that it never had, and I think he's doing that in six literal days to show us how we're supposed to work and rest, even though he could have created it all perfectly and to summarize that in Isaiah 45 as saying, you know, he didn't create something that was a mess. It's like me saying, you know, what about what I made for you kids? I made this car out of clay. Well, that is what I made. Well, it didn't start that way because it took me an hour to make it. And it took God six days to make the world, not because he needed six days to create it. But I, I do think that is, um, I, I think there's no, there's no problem here. One is a summary in Isaiah 45, and one is the process in Genesis 1. So that's my answer, Hugh, even though I know good Christian men uh, and women that hold to the gap theory, and uh, they use this passage as a key reference, but it's not one that's convincing to me, even though I understand it. Uh, I don't like the motivation, because I don't want us to sit here and bow to the geologist or the paleontologist that say, well, you got to have an older earth than you got if you you know read the book of Genesis. And I'm saying, well, that, there's no problem here with God creating things instantaneously and having an appearance of history and age that it never had. So does that help you, at least to, to understand my well, that, Yeah, I... I, I agree with what you're saying, and don't uh, support the gap theory. Uh, and I know God didn't need six days, although I believe in the six-day creation, as Exodus 20 indicates. Um, in six days, it made heaven and earth and all that is therein. And so uh, but my, 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 my question relates to not a time gap, uh, although there's timing involved in this creative process, but rather 
uh, if we were to take literally Isaiah 45, 18, that he created it, he didn't create a waste place, so something happened. It could have happened with, within, you know, milliseconds, you know, because God can do whatever he wants within whatever time period he, he wants. And so I'm not, uh, purport, uh, you know, supporting the gap theory, but rather if God started with a perfect creation uh, let's say formed and shaped to be inhabited. Uh, is there the possibility that uh, even Satan being cast out into the earth within that first day of creation, no time gap uh, theory, uh, and then you know God then bringing order out of the disorder that that would have surely created? Is that a um, a possible? I recognize that not everyone has to believe the same thing, and the Scripture is not clear, but is that a possible understanding, particularly if that word past tense was in Genesis 2, could have also been understood in the continuing, sure, it be just past, that's true, it was past tense, but how did it get that way, and could it have become that way as a result of chaos created by Satan and his angels being cast into the earth? Well, there's a lot that's added there with our imagination of other biblical concepts. And, and again, as I said, I don't think that takes anyone outside the realm of orthodoxy. And clearly, Hugh, you're talking about believing the things that I think are important that God creates. He has no need to use evolution as a tool. And so, yeah, I think good conservative Christians reading the Bible can imagine that that is the case. But uh, I'm saying that is an imagination. That's a step away from the reading of the text. It's trying to read in different pieces of the text into Genesis. And I'm going to say, uh, I, I don't think it's necessary. Necessary, and uh, I'm not saying it's not possible. It is possible, but it's it's not my view, and I'm still unconvinced regarding that. But uh, I appreciate the thinking on it, because it certainly pulls a lot of things together. All right, we're going to take a break, and I'm so glad that I'm able to be here today. I'm Pastor Mike Fabar, sitting in for Dr. Michael Rydelnik. You're listening on Open Lines, uh, on Open Line. you're listening to Open Line on, <laughs> on Moody Radio's Bible Study Across America. Please give us a call, 877-548-3675. That's our phone number, and we're going to be back with more of your questions, 877 548 548-3675. We'll be right back. I want to tell you about this month's free gift from Chosen People Ministries. People often tell me they only learned about this worldwide outreach to the Jewish people through my mentioning it here on Open Line. Well, this month, Chosen People Ministries is offering the booklet to an ancient people. This is the autobiography of Rabbi Leopold Cohn. It tells the story of the trials and triumphs of a young rabbi in his native rural Hungary in the late 19th century and his quest for truth. Leopold's trip to the new world and his indescribable joy in finding Yeshua are told in inspiring and timeless detail. Rabbi Cohn went on to found Chosen People Ministries. For your free copy of To an Ancient People, just go to the Open Line website. That's openlineradio.org. Scroll down. You'll see the link that says, A Free Gift from Chosen People Ministries. Click on that. You'll be sent to a page where you can sign up for your very own free copy of To an Ancient People. Back. I'm Mike Fabares sitting in today for Dr. Michael Rydelnik. You're listening to Open Line with Dr. Michael Rydelnik, and we are back to calls. Let's go to James in Tennessee. James, you're on the air with Pastor Mike. How can I help? 
Good morning, and I think uh, Dr. Renelnik uh, chose wisely when he chose you to fill in. Oh, that's kind uh, of you, James. Thank you. Well, my concern is, and I know the scriptures uh, say that uh, in Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 5, God knows us. He knits us together in our mother's womb. He knows his plans for us. And uh, we don't hear much about, you know, uh, from the church and our whatever Christian uh, uh, brethren about uh, how bad it is to abort children. And, uh, you know, people say, well, it's, it's protecting our body, but it's not a tumor. It's a human being. And uh, it saddens me, you know, to know what's going on in the world today. And I know that these things are supposed to happen in the last days, and it's drawing close to Christ coming back after the church. But uh, I am very concerned about uh, the silence, you know, in our churches about uh, things like this. Yeah, well, I'm not sure what church you're, you're going to, but we definitely need to always emphasize the importance of the sanctity of life, and it is everywhere in the Scripture that life is given by God, and that we have no right uh, to say, well, this life isn't worth living. I mean, that really harkens back, at least in the near history of our civilization, in Western civilization, to uh, the Third Reich, saying there is life that's not worthy of life. If you're handicapped, or you don't have full mental capacities, uh, or you're not the right ethnicity, we should be able to kill you with Im immunity. And, and that's the problem, is that we cannot see life as something that we have as our own possession. It's a stewardship from God, and so that's why we are very adamant about the fact that uh, not only are we going to go through our, uh, you know, our, our, our nursing homes and just eliminate people because they don't seem to be productive to society or go into the womb and extract human life because it's not convenient for us as adults to, to raise those children. Yes, it's, it's sin, it's wrong, and it needs to be preached about, it needs to be talked about, and we need to always affirm the sanctity of, of human life. And everyone likes to go immediately to, well, you know, it's, it's, this baby could uh, be at risk to the mother. You know, that is such a rare, such a small, 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 small proportion of anyone's even thinking about what is motivating uh, someone for abortion. So we, 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 we cannot have a um, perspective that says, well, if the culture likes this culture of death, we're okay with it. We don't want to cause any problems. We should definitely speak up for the unborn. We should speak up for those that are uh, mentally ill, those that are incapacitated in some way, uh, those that are in a coma, those that are in the final season of their life. Uh, we are pro-life for sure, and I think every real Christian listening to this is, and, and we want to continue to affirm that. So, James, I hope you know you're in good company here to say that, and we want everyone to be unafraid. There's no middle ground on these topics, and uh, I just know that we hear it. Uh, it's bombarding our minds and media, and I think sometimes people just think, well, maybe uh, Christians think this too. Well, I, I don't think many Christians that I know that are devout Christians, they go to church, they study their Bibles, they read their Bibles, they pray to the Lord, think that it's okay for us to, uh, to abort our children. So we're with you on that, James, that's for sure. And I 100% back you on that concern, and we need to speak up for life. Thanks for that call, James, and that good reminder. Let's go to Kenal now in Naples, Florida. Kenal, you're on the air. How can I help? Yes, Pastor, thank you for taking my call. Uh, Pastor, I've been married for 25 years. After 25 years of abuse, 
where my, my wife put her hand on me almost all the time. But, you know, where I was raised, they always teach me never put your hand on women. And we have two kids. And uh, after I talking so many times, I told her she have to stop. She never stopped. Finally, the kids going up now, she's still doing the same thing. So I call her, talk to her over and over. She never, never listen. And outside, she's a good person, the best person ever. And she, she's a nurse. When she gets to the house, it's like the best person. So now I, I, I decided to divorce her. And my pastor told me, I cannot get another woman. So please, I would like to know. He said, if I get another woman, I'm going straight to hell. So please help me about that, Pastor. Well, someone who's concerned about the covenant of marriage and says, hey, listen, you need to make sure that this is a biblical divorce before you get remarried, I would think is not someone saying you're going to straight, straight to hell uh, for any sin as a Christian. Uh, but what we want to prevent is anyone who is treating marriage, the marriage covenant lightly. And I think your pastor may have that as a concern. But we need to recognize that we are not the kinds of people that have a view of sin, that sin is something that uh, Christ doesn't take care of on the cross, that we have to take care of it in some other way. And, and that would be for Christians that we're going to get sent to hell. So what we need to do is make sure that you're having good counsel about not only the decision to divorce, which is a big deal in Scripture, right? God hates it. I trust that you hate it. This is a last resort for situations that are more than just this person is bothering me or I don't like this marriage anymore or it's loveless. This needs to be reserved for the most severe cases. And that when if someone chooses to do that because this is a severe situation that the Scripture allows divorce for, that if we get remarried, uh, no one's going to be able to say, well, listen, any Thing that you do, if I think even it's an unbiblical act, that's going to send you to hell. Uh, what sends you to hell is not your is not trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, of course, we all want to walk faithfully with the Lord. But uh, yeah, I'm not sure, you know, how that has uh, come to be or how that was stated. But that would not be a biblical position to make such an extreme statement about any act, whether it is sinful or unwise or you know, certainly if it's allowed in Scripture, and that would need a lot of counsel and insight from people that know the Bible well and know your situation well. Thanks for the call, Keenall. That sounds tough. We will pray for you. Certainly many of our listeners are, I'm assuming, right now. Let's go to Karen now in Naples, Florida, listening on WSOR. How can I help? Hi there. Hi. Um, this is my question. I was speaking to a very dear friend, and the subject of predestination came up, that she was leaving her church, her and her husband were leaving their church because their church did not believe in the doctrine of predestination. They do. So they found another church that, you know, believes in predestination, um, being that your soul is predestined to, let's see, I, I googled it, I'm sorry I googled it, but it says at the beginning of time, God selected a limited number of souls to grant salvation to, and there's nothing any individual person can do during their life to alter their eternal fate. That's actually what she believes, and that's, I, I have a hard time with that. 
I right? do well, the not. way that it's stated, Karen, and let me just make clear that the, the concept of predestination, the word predestination, is one we all have to deal with because it's a biblical word. Right. I mean, not only for people and salvation and passages like Ephesians chapter one, verse five, verse 11, or Romans chapter eight, verses 29 and 30, but also of situations like Acts chapter four, verse 28. There are circumstances that God predestines to take place. And that's clear. Even the crucifixion of Christ was according to God's predestined plan. So we understand that God is a God who plans, a God is a God who decrees things to be. But when we think about our salvation, if you see that concept or hear that word, you think, oh man, that makes us a robot. That makes us like we're just like we're just rocks that God moves around on a on a chessboard. Well, we need to realize there's nothing in the scripture that is concerning regarding the doctrine of predestination laid right next to our responsibility and, and, and responsibility to choose to do what God has told us to do. The whole message of the gospel is sending the message out to people to tell people to repent of their sins and put their trust in Christ. And so we know that whatever we're going to believe about predestination, we have to believe that it is not in some kind of contradistinction to the fact that all of us are held responsible for our decisions. The problem with some is that when they say, I don't like predestination, they think that all human beings are neutral, they're born neutral, they can choose to do whatever they want regarding the message of Christ. And I think everybody, regardless of what side of the aisle you're on doctrinally, is going to say, if they know the Bible well, that none of us are saved without the grace of God, that God is a gracious God that grants to us the grace to even understand the gospel. He's given us the grace to even live and to think, and our brains wouldn't work if the Lord didn't in endow us with intelligence and endow us with situations that give us opportunity to learn or to grow or to be exposed to scripture or the gospel. So we have to lay these down side by side and, and realize they're not irreconcilable concepts. They're just concepts that are hard for us to compute in our minds. And I would recommend this book for you if it's a new concept for you or a new idea. Uh, J.I. Packer wrote a little book called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. It's a good book that'll stretch your thinking a little bit to say, let's look at all the passages that deal with us responding to the gospel and all the passages dealing with God predestining us and electing us to eternal life. Let's put these side by side and realize that the one does not mean that the other one is not true. They are both true at the same time, even though they're hard for us sometimes to reconcile in a short definition on a website. So Karen, I, I definitely say if this is a new concept to you, we got to dig deeper and we got to know that some people who know just a little bit and they like this word or that word, they get put into polarizing camps. They really don't understand the full breadth of what the scripture says on it. And it really starts to divide Christians and divide churches. And it really doesn't need to, because the deeper we dig in scripture, the deeper we understand these concepts, the more we're going to realize this is a rich topic and one that has just does nothing but increase our love and respect and, and, and adoration of the God of wisdom who's done great things and continues to be gracious to us. So I hope that helps. And I'm grateful for that call. Let's try to squeeze in one more before the break. James, let's go to Spokane, Washington, listening on KMBI. How can I help? Uh, good morning, uh, Dr. Mike. I had a question. I was reading recently Psalms uh, 2.12, where it says, Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and trying to figure out what exactly that means. And if they knew thousands of years ago when David wrote that, the concept of the son at all, let alone um, the meaning of this passage. Yeah, well, Second Samuel chapter 7, there was clearly a sense of someone coming from David's line 
who would be the ultimate fulfillment of God's plan to bring in one to whom all dominion and all authority would be vested in. This is back to Daniel 7. Daniel 7 spoke of this one to whom all the nations, all the peoples were supposed to give their allegiance to. So in that sense, God has a a son, the second person of the Godhead, who was endowed with all authority over humanity that was created. So there's a lot that's starting to come together in the Old Testament. Now this, of course, David writing this before Daniel, uh, but still the idea of one who would be the ultimate leader goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. And so we understand that there is something regarding the son that goes beyond just the king. Although the king was understood to be the anointed one, verse 2 in Psalm 2, and the son in the sense that he is there reigning on behalf of God. And to kiss the son had to do with your allegiance to the king, to the monarch. And we know that has a double meaning in this sense, is it's not just being kind to the king of Israel, who has authority, but you are to be kind to the ultimate son of God, the, the, the son who is Jesus the Christ. And if you're not submissive to him, of course, then you will perish in your way and you will bear the penalty of your sin because of his just wrath. But blessed are all those who take refuge in him. So there is a clear near field fulfillment of this in the sense that David is the king and the king of Israel is to be honored. But ultimately, we all must honor the son of God and the son of God is the one, of course, that's revealed with full 3D clarity in the New Testament that Jesus the Christ is our Savior and our King, and we must submit to him. Kissing the Son is that sign of my allegiance and my submission to the King. So I hope that helps, James. Thanks for that call. Thanks for your questions. Thanks for all your questions today, and thanks for calling in. we got the mailbag segment coming up. This is Open Line with Dr. Michael Rydelnik on Moody Radio. This is Mike Fabar is sitting in for him, and we'll be back right after this break. Open Line is designed to take your questions and provide you with straightforward, honest answers from Scripture about the things that matter most. When you join our team of kitchen table partners, your monthly gift will help us stay on the air to continue to share the truth of the Bible with those who need to hear it. Become a kitchen table partner by calling us at 888-644-7122 or sign up online at openlineradio.org. Welcome back, everybody, to Open Line. I'm Dr. Mike Fabares filling in for Dr. Michael Rydelnik today, and we are now back to the mailbag segment, and that means that Trish McMillan is here. What do you have for us in the second hour mailbag segment? All right. Our first question is from John Calvin in Tennessee. No, it's not. <laughs> That's his first name. John, it can't be. John Calvin cannot be asking me a question. <laughs> <laughs> so his first name was John Calvin, and then he had a last name that he included. Um, in Tennessee, listening to WFCM, John 4, verses 1 and 2 says this. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, He left Judea and departed again for Galilee. He wants to know, does that mean that Jesus only baptized his disciples and from that point forward, he baptized no one else and it was his disciples who would baptize the new followers? Yeah, well, I think the passage grammatically says that Jesus, and it's a clarification in verse 2 there, Jesus did not baptize 
but only his disciples. In other words, the supplied subject here is that the, the disciples were the ones baptizing and not Jesus. So Jesus was not the pattern of the one who was like John the Baptist, baptizing them. Uh, yeah, I don't believe that we have any reference here to Jesus baptizing or even saying, well, he only baptized his disciples, which is a way I suppose you could read the English sentence, that parenthetical sentence. But really, this is about excluding the fact that Jesus was the one doing the baptizing. And I think you could say that as a uh, as a pattern. I mean, throughout his ministry, he did not baptize. Even Paul, if you think about it, when he speaks to the Corinthians, makes a point that he only baptized a few, that he was the preacher and those in the church and, and his missions organization there as he went through Achaia and Macedonia, they were baptizing. He, he was just giving the gospel, and that's the pattern certainly in Jesus's life. Okay. All right. Thank you for that. Good, careful reading, John Calvin. Um, next question is from Jane in Michigan. She listens to WGNB and says in the Bible there are examples of God changing someone's name. Abram was changed to Abraham, for example. In the book of Acts, um, she was looking at Saul's name change to Paul and wanted to know, was that a change that God did, or did people just start referring to him with that changed name? Now remember, everything in the book of Acts, the early part, is focusing on ministry in Jerusalem and Judea, and, and, and we have this expansion of the gospel into the Gentile lands, and even, as I just said, all the way out into Greece, which is, uh, you know, modern-day Greece, Macedonia and Achaia, and even beyond into Rome, and Paul wanted to get to Spain. Uh, so all of this is about a focus on a Gentile audience. And, and as Paul said in Romans chapter 11, verse 13, he magnifies his ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. So as a Gentile apostle, right, he's a Jewish man, right? He was on his way to, to sit on the Sanhedrin, a Pharisee of Pharisees, as he tells us in his autobiographical section of, of Philippians. He is focusing on his ministry to Gentiles. And so Paul is his Gentile name. Saul, of course, you remember the first king of Israel in the Old Testament, is his Jewish name. So he is shifting the way he's being referred to, which I think is the natural way they would refer to him uh, in, in Gentile lands. And that's what he went by, Saul and Paul. You can hear the similarity, but one is Roman, one is Gentile, one is Jewish. And so because of his focus on his Gentile ministry, he prefers to be referred to and is called throughout the second half of the book of Acts as Paul and not Saul. So he would have been known by both, depending. So, so like Peter potentially would have called him Saul still. Could have, even though he's described, even at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, as Paul, because in the book of Acts, the focus on him going to the Gentiles was already laid out clearly in his calling, as he gets called in Acts chapter 9. So in Acts chapter 13, where it says that he's also called Paul, we could assume even after that, maybe he's called Saul by some of his Jewish friends, but he's known as the preacher to the Gentiles, and the word that he's being called throughout the rest of the of the book of Acts is Paul, and through his letters, of course. Okay. All right. Thank you for that. Um, thank you. <laughs> I hope that I hope that clears that up for you, Jane. Next question is from Bonnie in Illinois. Listens to WGNN. What is the difference between the Levites and the priests? I thought that they were the same. Are are they interchangeable, or is there a difference? 
Right. Well, let's put it this way. When we say, if I were to say uh, on my kids' little league team, right, there are some pitchers, right? There's pitchers and little league players. You would say, well, uh, all pitchers are little league players, but not all little league players are pitchers. And so it is with the Levites. The Levites, that's one twelfth of the nation, at least in theory, right? It's one of the tribes of Israel and the descendants of the tribes. Uh, and from that tribe, you have those who served as priests. So not all Levites are priests, but all priests are to be Levites, with one glaring exception, and that is Jesus, who's a priest, not according to the Levitical tribe, but according, as it says in the book of Hebrews, to the order of Melchizedek, because we had a legitimate king-priest before the time of the Mosaic law. But yes, all, all priests are Levites, not all Levites are priests, as long as you have an asterisk next to that. And remember, well, Christ is one exception to that, because he's the ultimate high priest. Okay. So when we read, like often when we read the Old Testament, it's the the priests and Levites are, it would be like you were saying with the Little League team. It's the pitchers and the team and the other players. It's it's both right, when, because they, much, when they reference it that way. Because much like pitchers, right, they're very important to the team. And the Levites, I mean, the most honored thing you could do as a part of that tribe is to be a priest. And no one could be a priest unless you were from the tribe of, of Levi. Asterisk. Except for Jesus. Yes, okay. except for Jesus. That's right. And that was, that was the stumbling block for people. As, as the New Testament was supposed to be the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises regarding the ultimate king and the ultimate prophet and the ultimate priest, they said, well, wait a minute. We can't say he's the ultimate priest because you got to be from Levi. That's why Hebrews makes such a deal of that in three chapters of the book to say, wait a minute, he is a priest because there is a legitimate priesthood outside of Levi. And that's one that we saw back there in Genesis, which was odd and just kind of jumped into the narrative in the middle of Genesis. And he is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek because that Melchizedekian priesthood is a strange thing. It's not what the Mormons say. We can't build a whole theology around it as regarding today, but we are saying that Jesus is in the pattern of a legitimate priesthood, and that priesthood right, can only be seen outside of Levi in one place in the book of Genesis by some man named uh, Melchizedek, which some would say is Jesus in a pre-incarnate state, which that's a different theory, and it could be true. But uh, yeah, Levites and priests are distinct. One is within the other, concentric circles. Okay. All right. Thank you for that question, Bonnie. Thank you for that answer. Uh, next question is from Mary in Alabama. She listens to WMBW. What will the Holy Spirit's role be in eternity? While we're on earth, he's our comforter and strength to move forward, gives us power for walking with Christ and understanding spiritual things. But in eternity, sin will be gone and we'll be in heaven with God. So what will the Holy Spirit do? Okay, well, I wrote a book on the afterlife, and I'm not sure I use this illustration, but I know when I preach, I often do, and and, and I just all apologies because every illustration breaks down, but if you picture a school and three important roles, you have a, a principal, you have your teacher, and then you have the custodian. Right? The, the principal is in charge of everything. The, the teacher is the one the principal wants the students to pay attention to. Pay attention to your teacher. And that's our teacher, Jesus Christ. The principal is God the Father. Then there's the custodian. And the custodian is there to fix whatever problems might come to make sure we all are able to pay attention to the teacher. And so if, you know, back in my day, right, if the overhead projector burned out or the TV went off or whatever, he was there to fix all that. So I, I think the role of the Holy Spirit will continue in the sense that he will be there to make sure all of our attention is put on Christ, even though, right, 
all the broken things will be fixed. So what is his role? I'm not sure other than he will encourage, motivate, and fuel us to continue to put our focus on Jesus. Some people say, well, we want to put the focus on the Holy Spirit. That was a very popular thing. A lot of books were written to say, let's spend more time focusing on the Spirit. The Spirit is indispensable, obviously, the third person of the Godhead, but his role is to constantly pull our attention toward Jesus and make sure any of the problems that stand in the way between us and Christ are are taken care of. And so, He's the fuel. He's the focus. He's shining the light on Jesus, and we are to pay attention to Jesus. And so it will be in eternity, because Jesus will be the glorified second person of the Godhead that will be the focus of our worship, and it will bring glory to God the Father, as it says in Philippians chapter 2. All right. Thank you for that. And and for those interested in that book that you wrote, it is called Ten Mistakes People Make About Heaven, Hell, and the Afterlife. And that is linked at our Open Line website, which is openlineradio.org. That is also where you can submit your questions for the mailbag for future programs. Uh, there's a spot just says, ask Michael a question. You can fill that out. That'll come to my inbox, and I will add your questions to the mailbag. So thank you for answering these questions today. Awesome. Well, we love the questions, and we've got more that are lined up here on the radio on our board. So we're going to get to those just after a quick break. You're listening to Open Line, Dr. Michael Rydelnik on Moody Radio, but I happen to be uh, Mike Fabares sitting in for him today, and we love answering your questions, and we do have more coming up right after this break. Would you like to explore the depth of Psalms and go beyond the familiar verses and Proverbs? Well, the Moody Bible Commentary should be the first place we turn for biblical insight. We've excerpted the Moody Bible Commentary on the Psalms and Proverbs to help you better understand God's Word and apply the worship of Psalms and the wisdom of Proverbs to our everyday lives. Give a gift today and request your copy of the commentaries on Psalms and Proverbs. Call 888-644-7122 or visit openlineradio.org. Welcome back to Open Line. I'm Dr. Mike Fabares sitting in for Dr. Michael Rydelnik, and we're going to go back to the phones. Gary, you're on the air in Asheville, Georgia. How can I help? Yeah, thank you, Pastor, for taking my call. Um, I So Hebrews 10.6, I have ESV, for, for God is not unjust, so as to overlook your work and the love you've shown for his name and serving the saints, as you still do. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my question is, my question is, is does God... Does God help us understand what those were? Uh, they would. They would. That sounds like rewards to me. As we, as we, um, you know, um, as we do, as we further the kingdom. Absolutely. Am I yeah, you are. Matter of fact, so much it. so that, that Jesus it. said in Matthew ten forty two, you can't even give a cup of cold water to someone because oh, they're yeah, a disciple yeah. without losing your reward. Now, what are those rewards? I, I can tell you there's some hints in Scripture when it talks about us laying up treasure on, on, on in heaven and not on earth, right? Jesus said something right. about true riches in Luke 16, 11. He says, if you haven't been faithful with this unrighteous wealth down here, who's going to entrust you with true riches? So there's some kind of currency. There's some kind of uh-huh. value in things wow. that God is going to give us. And, and another good hint passage would be Matthew 19. Matthew 19, verses 28 through 30, Jesus is talking to the disciples after the rich young 
ruler walked away. And he said, in the new world, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me. And, and he speaks specifically to the 12 here, saying they'll sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, that's position of leadership, which he does say to the common people saying, you know, I'm going to set you over five cities. I'm going to set you over three cities. I'm going to set you over two cities. So there's going to be leadership responsibilities. It's going to be divvied out based on our faithfulness in the Christian life. He goes on to say, if anyone has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or children or lands for my sake are going to receive a hundredfold. Now think about that, houses, right? If you right now, if you are faithful to the Lord, Gary, you're probably given, you know, a, a chunk of your money. I mean, probably double-digit percentages of your money to missions, to your church, you know, to things that advance the gospel. Well, you're living in probably a smaller house than you could afford if you weren't faithful to give to the Lord. Well, the Bible says whatever you sacrifice, even if you had to leave your house to go to the mission field, or maybe you're in a smaller apartment than you would be, you could afford a house if you weren't so generous with your finances for the Lord, you're going to receive a hundred times as much. Now, this is a real place, right? This is a place where we're going to have fingernails and toenails and eyelashes and earlobes. We're going to be in, in real resurrected bodies living on a real new earth. And that new earth is going to come with lands and houses. It's going to come with relationships, brothers and sisters. A lot of relationships are strained because of our faithfulness to Christ. Well, we're going to have even more relationships. Sometimes we feel alone in the Christian life because it seems like our stand for Christ, we're losing relationships left and right. The Bible says he's going to repay us. I like to talk in terms of riches and real estate and relationships and in and, and even in terms of reputation. He talks about seeing, sitting at my right hand and my left. He talks about the names of the 12 apostles written on the foundations of the New Jerusalem. There are going to be billboards with people's names on it. God is going to honor them. Jesus said one day when he comes back, he's going to take up the position of serving his servants. What a great thing that's going to be. So all I can tell you is the rewards are real. I think they're tangible, and they're laid out for us as a motivation for us to say, you want to glorify the Lord? It's going to come with great reward. You won't lose your reward. He's not unjust to not pay you back. He's going to pay you back. Gary, I could talk for a long time about that, but I hope that little snippet helps just a little bit to get you excited about living for the Lord. I appreciate that. Thank you so much, brother. God All right, Gary. Appreciate the call. Let's go to Paul now in North Perry, Ohio, listening on WTGN. Paul, you're on with Mike Fabares. How can I help? Yes. Good morning, Pastor Mike. Thank you for using your gifts and teaching to serve the body of Christ. Thank you. Um, I've been part of a weekly men's prayer group for quite some time. We pray for the church, revival in our country and our leaders. Here's my question. In heaven, will believers get a replay of the prayers we prayed on earth? I'm just trying to encourage my group of men. So in heaven, will believers get a replay of the prayers we prayed on earth? Yeah, that's hard to say. I can't think of a particular passage that's going to make that point specifically. But I do know, even just based on our last call with Gary, if we're going to be rewarded and God is going to be generous in serving us, in giving us things because of our sacrifice and service now, I mean, there has to be a connection, even though a lot of the bad things are not going to be called to mind, as Isaiah said, we're not going to bring back all the bad things that happened on earth. I think there will be, on this earth, I should say, in the new earth, in the new world, as Jesus put it there in Matthew 19, I think we're going to have to make these connections connections mentally, or a lot of this isn't going to make sense. So to say, this is what the Lord is doing 
because of this thing that happened, obviously prayer was an integral part of it. And I do think we'll have to have some connection in our memories to the way that we prayed for the Lord to do this or that, and the Lord did do this or that, and uh, we'll be able to rejoice in that. And even because there's good that's come from it, God is going to bring fruit from the answered prayers, right? The uh, effectual prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. And I think there's going to be much that is celebrated in eternity in the new earth. And so we will have opportunity to say, look at how God used these prayers to glorify himself and ending up just mind-blowingly saying to us, I'm going to reward you because of your participation in it. So yeah, I do think we'll probably recall a lot of these, but I can't point to a particular verse that's going to say, here's how you'll remember your prayers. But I think assembling those biblical truths together, I do think that is probably a good part of it. Does that help, Paul? Uh, again, that the whole celebration aspect in heaven and anything that would glorify the Lord. That was sort of the angle that I was taking. And thank you so much for answering the question. Yeah, so good. That's good stuff. We'll keep praying in that small group. Motivate those men to keep praying. We need to pray more and more. All right, let's squeeze in Michael here in Kokomo, Indiana, listening on WGNR. How can I help? You're on with Mike Fabares. Hey, good morning, Pastor. Thank you. Uh, so I'm just trying to clear up. Um, I have a friend that's causing me some confusion here. He's saying that uh, by calling God, God, and not Yahuwah, and calling Jesus, Jesus, and not Yeshua, that we're actually using their name in vain because those names were changed by men a long time ago to keep us from addressing God and the Savior in their original, in their original names, and that we're leading people astray by calling them God and Jesus. Yeah, well, Michael, we're not leading them astray, and and it sounds to me like you may be dealing with a, a Jehovah Witness uh, or someone who's at least bought into some of that thinking uh, that we got a witness to the name, the divine name of God, or maybe it's an offshoot of that. Doesn't matter. The bottom line is, I know this: God is glorified by people being converted from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Tongue means language. Doesn't matter what language that is used to express Christian doctrine of sin and salvation and redemption. Uh, those things glorify the Lord. Lord. And we have the Bible written in two languages, actually three if you include Aramaic, a, a dialect of Hebrew, and, and the words are different, right? The New Testament is recorded in a different language than the Old Testament, and so these words are translated. And as we translate words like Yeshua into Jesus, this, this kind of Latinized form of the word Yeshua, we're not discouraging anything about the the greatness of Christ. We have a very full orb doctrine of Christ, and we glorify Christ by worshiping Christ, and God is glorified even by the diversity of language and culture of people coming to Christ, and that's going to be a great day when we see that in its fullness. So, Michael, don't buy into that, and you have nothing to worry about calling Jesus Jesus or calling the Lord God instead of Yahweh. These things uh, are going to happen. They're going to continue to happen throughout the process of world missions. Michael, thanks for the call there from Kokomo. Have a great day. And I want to thank all of you for calling in. And we left plenty of people on the line here, but thanks for your participation. Thanks for listening and calling. And thank you for being a part of this program today. Couldn't happen without Trish McMillan and Courtney Young and Lynn on the phones, our Open Line team. If you want more information about Open Line, go to openlineradio.com. OpenLineRadio.org. OpenLine with Dr. Michael Rydelnik is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of the Moody Bible Institute. This is Mike Fabares, privileged to be your host today. Have a great day in the Lord.